0: Amen. I really like that song, man. That was good. Go ahead and get in your Bible if you would to John chapter one. John chapter one. If you don't have a Bible with you, should be one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page seven seventy-eight, seven seventy-eight. John chapter one. As you see, my voice is better, but still not good. I feel fine. I look bad, but I still feel fine, and. Um, Pray that my voice would be good enough to speak forth uh, God's truth for today and that the Spirit of God would use it to glorify Jesus and be a help and blessing to you. A few weeks ago on Sunday mornings, we started a lengthy series on great texts in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the Gospel of John. And though I would hope many of you will read through the Gospel of John, far fewer of us will take the time to read through the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah, and I wanted our congregation here, God's people here, to get a taste of those books because I believe God has something for us in them as well as in the New Testament. Uh, All the Bible, of course, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto all good works and every example in the bible whether it is a good example or a bad example is written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come according to 1st Corinthians 10 last sunday morning we talked about a rose by any other name would smell as sweet and we looked at a couple of things that isaiah warned people about in his day and made application of them to our day. He warned about calling things something different than God called them. God wants us to call good what he has determined to be good. He wants us to call evil what he has determined to be evil and says woe unto any of us who don't call things what God calls them. Isaiah then warned them about having a healthy view of themselves, not to think more highly of their wisdom and knowledge than they ought to think. Uh, And he warned that thinking too highly of our knowledge and of who we are will bring woe into our lives. And though people tend to think too highly of themselves, we rejoice in the fact that every person has value to our creator. And we rejoice in the fact that we are each as individuals, we are loved and we are valued by God, regardless of how this world may look at us. I hope you understand as we go into this series that everything uh, God chose to inspire and preserve in his Bible is there for a reason. Every word matters. And though every word is there on purpose, I don't know why every word is there, but I do know this, that among all the words that God inspired and preserved are some truths that are mountaintops, mountain peaks that rise above all the other great truths, great truths that are so significant. That even 1,900 years after the New Testament was penned, they are especially applicable and meaningful to us today. And today, we are going to jump to the New Testament to begin considering some mountaintops of truth uh, in the Gospel of John. I'll tell you up front, the Gospel of John is my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, I love the book of Genesis. I love Psalms. I love Proverbs. I love First and 2 Timothy, I love the book of Acts, uh, but my favorite book is the Gospel of John. The human author of this Gospel was John the Apostle. He was the younger brother of James, and James was also an apostle. Their parents were a man and woman named Zebedee and Salome. Now, Salome, we learn, uh, was a very faithful, committed disciple of Jesus. Their father, Zebedee, we really don't know much uh, about. Uh, John and his brother James were both a part of their dad's successful fishing business. When Christ called him to salvation and into ministry, it was a business that was successful enough that they had servants that worked with them. And so John and James would be like what we would consider today to be small business owners who were doing fairly well at the time. Now, in John's Gospel, he is never mentioned by name. Uh, He's mentioned by name 18 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John's Gospel, he refers to himself five times simply as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Is that not interesting? Or a way to find your significance. In all that he had done that would be considered great among men and great among the work of God, he found his significance And that Jesus loved him. He was one of what we would consider to be the inner circle of apostles. James and Peter and John uniquely got to experience the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, the Mount of Transfiguration, and Christ's special prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Apostle John was the only one of the 11 remaining true apostles to be at the foot of Christ's cross. He was so close to Jesus, so personal was his relationship with Jesus of Nazareth that on the last night when they relaxed in the upper room, he leaned on Jesus' chest. He was so trusted by Jesus, so close that when Christ was breathing his last breath, he entrusted the physical care of his mother to John. It's widely held and that the first three Gospels were in circulation for several decades before the Holy Spirit inspired John to write his Gospel. So by the time John writes, as the first century comes to a close, the other apostles had been dead for at least 30 years. The Spirit of God moved him to write material of things that Jesus did and said that were not by and large recorded by the other three Gospel authors. 92%, they say, of John's gospel is unique to John's gospel. That's in contrast to the gospel of Mark, which has the most material that's duplicated elsewhere. Uh, About 10% or less of the gospel of Mark is unique to Mark. I especially find John's gospel interesting because it focused on what Jesus taught. And it focused on who he was not as much on miracles and things that he did. John makes it clear that Jesus was and is the Son of the living God. In fact, instead of starting with the birth or childhood of Jesus, John is going to start his gospel out much further back in the timeline than an angelic announcement or a manger in Bethlehem. After all, Jesus of Nazareth did not begin to exist in the Virgin Womb of Mary. He began long before the events we celebrate in Christmas season. If you're able to stand, if you would stand please this morning in honor of the written Word of God. The title of my thought for this morning is, In the Beginning Was the Word. In the Beginning Was the Word, John chapter 1 In verse 1, we read these words, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Thank you. You might be seated. John's Gospel begins with Some of the most powerful and familiar words in the New Testament. Words that remind us back to the very first words of God's written revelation of Himself in Genesis 1-1 where He says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John does not go back to the human genealogy of Joseph or Mary. He doesn't go back to an angel visiting Zacharias. He doesn't go back to shepherds keeping watch over their fields by night or a young couple huddled around a manger and a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He goes back to the beginning, the beginning of it all. And in these opening statements by John, he refers to Jesus as being the Word capital W, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now this Word was God, as well as being with God, and that may sound strange to you if you are new to the Bible, but those who are even a little familiar with what the Scriptures teach, we know that our Creator has revealed Himself to mankind as a threefold being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one true God who manifests Himself in three distinct individuals. We read then that this Word was the one who made all things. He created the heaven and the earth in their beginning in verse 3. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, the instrument of creation in the hands of the Father was the Son. The Son spoke all things, and that were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist, according to Colossians chapter one. In fact, in verse three, John begins to give us a bit of a hint who this Word, capital W, is by referring to as Him as a Him. All things were made by Him. The Word is a Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And just to make sure that he leaves no doubt about whom he is speaking when he speaks about the Word, capital W, in verse 14, he says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Though he existed from the beginning, the Word was made flesh in the virgin womb of Mary. The word dwelt among the Jews between the angelic announcement to Mary and his last breath at Calvary. And Peter, James, and John all beheld his glory, the glory of the word, and the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' face shone as the brightness of the sun and his garments were as white as the light with a glory that was the glory that only belongs to God himself. In fact, to leave no doubt about the kind of individual that the Word was, John describes him at the end of verse 14 as being full of grace and truth. And though I won't take time to talk about it this morning, from a human perspective, grace and truth never dwell together. Truth is cold and narrow. Grace is warm and broad. And yet in Jesus of Nazareth, these two things that do not go together at all from a human perspective were both in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word. We read then that the Word was the source of life, His life, and the life He gives is the light to all mankind in verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, man can and has made proteins and enzymes from things that exist, and Proteins and enzymes are the building blocks of life, but man made them from existing materials. What man has never done and never will be able to do, which is give life to things and chemicals that have no life, let alone make enzymes and proteins from nothing, which is what God did when he spoke the world into existence. All life is a gift of God. Only God could take and form with his hands the form of a man in the dust of the earth and then breathe into his nostrils in a way that only God can breathe and cause man to become a living soul. In him was life. And life is the light of men. Some of us have heard and read these statements hundreds of times. Others here this morning are hearing them for the very first time. But whether we've heard them hundreds of times and thought about them before or hearing them fresh and anew today, they're wonderful words that warm our heart because they give us insight into who Jesus was and is. You see, if you and I don't understand who Jesus is, that he is from everlasting, that he has been from the beginning, it's impossible to appreciate his birth as a baby. Bethlehem. In fact, there are far too many people who think Jesus began to exist in the virgin womb of Mary, or they think of him only as a baby in Bethlehem when in fact he existed from the beginning, not just from the beginning of creation, but from the beginning. You see, before time could be marked by the movement of the earth or the sun, Jesus was. He was God and he was with God. Before there was light, there was a God, God the Son, who said, let there be light. And there's light. Before there was a heaven and an earth, there was a threefold creator who existed in loving fellowship with the Son who Proverbs 8 describes as being the delight of the Father and rejoicing before him continually. You see, the great apostle couldn't have been clearer As the days of his time on earth drew nigh to closing, he wanted to be sure that people understood that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't merely a man. He wanted people to understand that the one who had changed his heart, the one who had dictated and driven his life and his decisions for the last six days, six decades, was far more than a man or far more than a prophet. He was the son of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. He wanted us to understand that when he leaned on Christ's chest that night in the upper room, he was leaning on the chest of God. He wanted us to understand that when Mary kissed her little baby in that manger, she kissed the cheek of God. And so hallowed be the name of Jesus. For there is none other name above that name and no other name by which we can be saved than the name of Jesus The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runneth into it and is safe. And what I'd like to do this morning for just a couple of moments, make some observations and applications of Jesus of Nazareth being the word and the source of life. Please first this morning, turn up a few pages to John chapter 8, John chapter 8. Here's number one. When we think wrongly about Jesus, it affects what happens to us in eternity. When we think wrongly about Jesus, it affects what happens to us in eternity. In John chapter eight, we begin reading in verse 21, then said Jesus again unto them, that's unto the religious leaders, he says, I go my way, and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Boy, isn't that a fearful thing? Whither I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he saith, whither I go, you cannot come. And he said unto them, You're from beneath, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. By the way, one of the things our Bible translators did in honesty, unlike all other modern translations, is where it was required to add a word to get an understanding in a second language, they put it in italics. And if you notice, if you have a good (laughs) version of the Bible there, he says, if you believe not that I am he, notice that he is italicized. It's like the word vice versa. How would you translate vice versa as one word in another language? You can't do that. And so they're not putting things in the text that don't belong. They're giving us things to help us understand. And so Jesus here is saying one of two things. If you believe not that I am, I am the the one who was the God who spoke to Moses in the bush where they asked him, uh, whom shall I say sent me? He said, I am that I am. Tell him I am has sent thee. Or he is saying to them, if you do not believe that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah, then you will die in your sins. Now, there have been a variety of views about who Jesus was and is over the last 19 centuries. There were some while he lived, and some today who still say he was a deceiver. There were some in his day, as there are today, who say that he was a prophet but nothing more. In fact, there are literally hundreds of millions of people on our planet that believe that Muhammad was a superior prophet to Jesus of Nazareth. There are some who said Jesus was the highest created being, but nothing more than a part of the creation. There are some who say that Jesus is a mighty God, but not the almighty God. John was among the three people who knew Jesus best. And understand that he was inspired and moved by God, not just because the Spirit had inspired him, but because of what he saw with his eyes and heard with his ears, that Jesus was God manifest in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, after spending three to three and a half years with Jesus in circumstances of all sort, John proclaimed Christ deity. He was with Jesus when Christ was tired, when he was wronged, when he was misunderstood. And yet John proclaimed Christ deity. He watched the way Christ suffered. He watched the way he responded to those who crucified him and proclaimed Christ deity. He saw and was with Jesus after his resurrection. He had now for six decades, by the time he picked up his quill to write his gospel, he had suffered incredible difficulties and persecution for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the very end, with the last drop of his ink, and with the last breath of his body, he proclaimed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he was God manifest in human flesh. Now the more time we spend with someone, the more we recognize their flaws. John spent a lot of time with Jesus and found no flaws at all. In fact, John went so far as to record Christ's words when he said something that from a human perspective seems to be outlandish. It's the kind of statement that only God could make, the kind of statement that only God manifest in the flesh could make when he says in verse 24, if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Imagine that. Now there are some things we can be wrong about and it hurt us in life but not affect us as far as living forever. But if you and I fail to believe that Jesus was he to believe that he was the I Am of the burning bush, to believe that he was the Messiah and the Son of God that he claimed to be, then understand this, regardless of who you are, regardless of how long you've been a Baptist, regardless of how your life compares to others who call themselves a follower of Jesus, understand you will die in your sins. So I ask you this morning, if you come to Jesus as the Son of God, as Savior for salvation, Listen, the, the, the Jesus who is just a prophet is not the same Jesus who was the Word manifest in flesh. Th- there's a way for you to live forever. It's by humbling yourself to call upon the name of the Lord, to humbly believe That he died for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, and that he'd save you if you'd call upon him. There's a way for you to live forever. Have you done that? You may think you're pretty good. And maybe compared to people you are. But imagine this. What if we were only as good as our thought life? Listen, there, there are some people, they have enough self-discipline that by and large among men and women, they behave pretty decently. But what about your thought life? And we've all known people who don't seem to have a good filter. And nothing, no secret, no criticism, ever seems to be safe in the lockbox. There may be some people here like that. I'm told there's a mental disorder where you say everything you think. And many of us here have some familiarity with some friend or loved one with dementia or some person with Asperger's, and we understand that they very often say very hurtful things. In fact, one of the great difficulties in dealing with people like that is we say to ourselves, How can they have in their heart that terrible thought about me? Listen, if our thought lives were exposed, we would have no relationships. None. I don't want to know what my wife thinks about my leadership. Uh, By the way, brother, if you're not afraid of what your wife really thinks about your leadership, you have your leadership on way too high of a pedestal. God knows our thoughts. You see, it isn't simply just that our deeds are such that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our thought life is such that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and that we literally have no merit to go to a thrice holy creator and say, God, I deserve to get in that golden city. God, I deserve to be behind those Jasper walls in that place where there's no evil, no sin, no bigotry, no violence, no cancer, no sickness. God, I deserve to be in there. Have you considered what's really in your heart? Listen, we've all gone astray and gone our own way. And so Jesus Christ is our only hope. He is the only Savior. He is the only way to keep any of us from dying in our sins. But coming to Jesus as a prophet is not enough. If you come to Jesus as a prophet, you have come to another Jesus. Jesus. If you come to a Jesus who is the mighty God, but not the almighty God, that is not the same Jesus. It may be a being called Jesus, but the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is the Word. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same in the beginning was with God, and all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Have you come to that Jesus? Or do you need forgiveness and salvation this morning? Why wouldn't you come to him as he is? Listen, because he is who he is, he's able to save you. Because he is who he is, he can live a sinless life and die for our sins because he did not have any of his own sins to die for. Because of who he is, he could shed his innocent blood and it be the blood that washes away our sins because of who he is. Listen, if you've never been saved, I hope in a few moments when we give an invitation, you'll respond to the Savior. The Savior who loved you and died for you. The Savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father but by him. But it's not just that when we think wrongly about Jesus, it affects what happens to us in eternity. Secondly, turn a few pages back, please, to John chapter (coughs) 5. John chapter 5. Here's number two. When we think rightly about Jesus, it affects how seriously we take sinning against him. When we think wrongly about Jesus, it affects us for eternity. When we think rightly about him, it affects how seriously we take sinning against him. In John chapter 5, notice what it says in verse 13. It says, And he that was healed wist not who it was, as he didn't know who had healed him, for Jesus had conveyed himself away. Oh, by the way, if this man did not know who it was that healed him, he didn't have any faith. And whenever you hear somebody preaching, well, Jesus healed everybody who had faith now, Jesus healed people because of the power in Jesus. And some people he healed had faith and others didn't. This was one it didn't. He said, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, behold, thou art made whole. Since you're living under grace, don't worry about your sin. Oh, my bad. He said, sin no more, lest a worse thing Come unto thee. So Jesus healed this man who'd been crippled 38 years, and then after he healed him, Jesus found him in the temple, gave him some advice. He told him to sin no more. Listen, willfully defying God after Christ had so clearly done what he did for this man was so significant that Jesus said he would have been better to remain a cripple lying by that pool. That's what he said. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. See, some people have the wrong idea that living under grace means that our sin doesn't matter anymore. Listen, we're saved by grace, but the grace that saves us teaches us and motivates us to get as much sin out of our life as possible. Listen, I I, I get it. None of us ever fully get sin out of our life as a follower of Jesus. But listen, that's very different from excusing the fact Well, everybody's a sinner, so I'm not going to bother trying to fix this. Listen, fix it. Our Savior has commanded us to repent. And when we care very little about who it is that tells us something, we're not very concerned about whether we listen. But when we care a lot about who tells us things, and we consider the one who told us something to be great, We care a lot about trying to do what they ask us to do. And so when we think rightly about Jesus, it affects our effort to clean up our life. Let me ask you, if you have been saved, are you a follower of Jesus who's working on cleaning up your life? It's a pretty basic question. Listen, God is not looking at your life for my sins. He's looking in your life for yours, just like he's looking in my life for mine. The things that God is working on in my life are different from the things that he's working on in yours. But he does expect the same thing from us, that we sin no more, that we get as much sin out of our life as possible. In fact, this isn't actually even the only time Jesus gave this particular advice. Turn up just a couple pages to John 8. So, Brother Wiley, why don't you start off with that? We were there a minute ago. Add keeps you awake. In John chapter 8 and verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw no, none but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, if you're somewhat of a student of the Bible, you understand this is a part of the story when the religious leaders brought a woman who was taken in adultery to to him. Something's wrong because the Old Testament law specified that the adulterer and the adulteress were supposed to be brought. So they were being hypocritical and one-sided in what they were doing. But that isn't the issue for our thought this morning. The issue is that Jesus said to this woman, listen, stop being the way you are. Get as much sin out of your life as you can. Go and sin no more. When Christ came the first time, he did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. But when he returns in power and he returns in glory, he will judge the world with a rod of iron and he will at that time condemn the world. We're just blessed today to live in a day like Robin sang about this morning when a savior says, hey, come as you are to me. Broken, sinful, prideful, wherever you are, Jesus says come, but he does not say stay like you are. He wants to change us. And when we care little about who tells us to do something, we're not very concerned about whether we listen. But when we care about someone a lot and consider them to be great who tells us to do something, we care a lot about trying to do what they've asked. And when we think rightly about Jesus, it affects how seriously we take his warning. To get as much sin out of our life as possible. Let, let, let me ask you, if you're a believer here, are you thinking rightly about who Jesus is to motivate you to clean up your life as much as possible? Maybe you're like the prodigal son. By the way, the prodigal son was a son. He knew what his father wanted, but he in effect shook his fist at his father and his father's rules and What he knew, his father had taught him to be right and wrong. And he says, listen, I'm not going to listen. And he went to the pig pen. And not surprisingly, anybody who lives disobedient to God, the father is going to the pig pen. Some of you are there. Some of you are on your way. So I plead with you, and Christ said, before you end up in the pig pen, come back to the father. The loving father whose arms are still open to you. The loving Father who basically said, go and sin no more. The loving Father who said, listen, I've saved you by grace. You're living by grace. You're nothing at all without my grace, but I want you to clean up your life. Jesus is worthy of us living clean lives. He's worthy of you and I not being like this sinful and proud culture in which we live. And you might not want to listen to me saying, hey, clean up your life. But Jesus is the one who says it. Go and sin no more. Whether you're here and you're 14 or whether you're here and you're 94, if you're a believer, His message to you, go and sin no more. Clean up your life. You may not agree, but now after I've been a believer for 39 years, I have been amazed over the years at how flippantly People who say they believe in the Lord Jesus treat the sin in their life as if it was no big deal to willfully and defiantly do the opposite of what He's told us. So I plead with you more this morning because of who Christ is. If you're a believer, go and sin no more. Clean up your life. Because when we think rightly about Jesus, it affects how seriously we take our sin. But that isn't the only thing we learn And can apply when we think about Jesus being the Word, the Word who was God, the Word who was with God, the one in whom is life, the one whose life is the light of men, the one who created it all, who called everything that exists from nothing. Lastly, this morning, if you'd please go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. By the way, as far as I know, I'm healthy, other than my voice. I know some of you can't relate to this, but once we get to about September, my sinuses go nuts for about six months. And for those of you who aren't like that, God bless you. Here's number three. When we think rightly about Jesus, it affects what we're willing to sacrifice to follow him. Remember, when we think wrongly about Him, it affects us in eternity. When we think rightly about Him, it affects how we handle sin in our life. And when we think rightly about Him, it affects what we're willing to sacrifice for Him. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul here says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. By the way, I don't know how difficult it is to die as a martyr, but I think it might be easier to find the faith to have courage to die for Christ in a moment than it is to find courage to live for Christ over decades. Neither one is easy. So Paul begs them, because God had merciful to them, he besought them, he begs them to present their bodies a living sacrifice. It's a way to live. Holy, H-O-L-Y, acceptable unto God, which he considered to be a reasonable service. I think most of us understand that as a follower of Jesus, there are some things we should not do. But I hope you also understand that as a follower of Jesus, it's not just basically a little biblical manual filled of thou shalt nots. There are also some things he wants us to do Christianity isn't just what we don't do, it's also about what we are, what we do that's positive and good. And unfortunately, many people, including believers, they think true Christianity and following Christ is easy. And that being a follower of Christ really just minimally disrupts your life. And and by the way, if you've been around me any amount of time, you know, you've heard me say this many times, I don't believe the error of modern Christianity is changing the gospel. I believe the error of modern Christianity is defining what it means to be a disciple. To biblically define discipleship is a rigorous thing. It is taking up your cross and following Jesus. It is not a casual thing that minimally disrupts our life. It rather instead causes us to make our lives a living sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not always supposed to be easy to do the right thing. The easiest path has never produced the greatest fulfillment in life nor the greatest reward in heaven. I think if all of us here understand that streams follow the path of least resistance down the mountain and there's no such thing as a straight stream. And if you're going to take the path of least resistance in life, understand you're going to be crooked. Whereas he has instead asked us to make our life a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And because Jesus is the Son of God, and because he has given us eternal life by grace, he is worthy of disruption in our life for his sake. He's worthy of our priorities changing from fame and fortune in this life to faithfulness to him. He's worthy of our morals changing from doing what we want to do to living a life that he would describe as pure. He's worthy of his church being a priority. He's worthy of ministry disrupting our priorities and our schedule, even though most of our world does not do that. Let me ask you this morning, is your faith in Jesus Christ costing you anything? Is it disrupting your schedule at all? Is it changing your priorities? Would anyone at all who knows you describe you as someone whose life is a living sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ? Would they describe you as, yeah, you know what? My mom has sold out to Jesus. My dad has sold out to Jesus. The most important thing in their life is following Christ as Savior. The most, second most important thing in their life is their family. Would they describe you like that? He's worthy. When someone as important as the word made flesh does something as significant as dying for our sins on the cross, it should move our hearts. To be willing to make some sacrifices to be found faithful to him because he's been faithful and good to us. Go ahead and put that slide up if you would, please. That is a ocean-going cargo ship And that's the rudder in the back. And see that man sitting in the back of the rudder? On June 27th, four men decided to flee the crime and political instability of Nigeria. Had a friend take them in a small boat to the rudder of a large cargo ship. They didn't even know where it was going. They got on the rudder. They tied themselves to a net. They took food with them, but on day 10, their food and water ran out on a trip that actually took 14 days, riding 3,500 miles across the ocean. When their drinking water ran out, they drank seawater that splashed up to them, which if you know anything about that, will eventually kill you. They remained completely quiet the entire time because they believed that if the crew found them, they would throw them in the water and leave them. Like I said, they had no idea where they were going. The ship ended up in Brazil. Now these men, any sacrifice and difficulty was worth enduring to get away from where they were. How much more worthy is the Lord Jesus of our sacrifices and the difficulty of living faithfully? He is the Word who was from the beginning, both with God and who was God. He lived a sinless life and died in our place because of his great love for you and I as sinners. He is worthy of our heart. He's worthy of our sacrificial service. He's worthy of us deciding to be faithful to him and his dear cause. When you and I think rightly about Jesus, it affects what we're willing to sacrifice. Do you know what I think? I think there are a lot of believers in Jesus, true believers, and He is not big enough to you yet. Because if he was bigger, if he really was to you who he really was, it would change us. If Jesus is just a little baby and a gentle Savior to you, you'll behave differently than if he's the son of God and the word made flesh to you. And I ask you this morning, has Jesus as a son of God loving you and dying for you, has it moved you to turn to him as savior? Listen, he's not only willing, he is able to forgive and save you regardless of where you've been and what you've done. And if you've been saved, Has Jesus being our creator impacted whether you obey him? If you're saved, has it impact what you're willing to give up or sacrifice for him and his dear cause? Or or if you're honest, would would you say, you know what, Brother Wally? I've really, over the last months and years, become increasingly casual about my faith. Would you today... Let Jesus be the Son of God again in your heart and mind because that's who he is. You'd quietly stand.